This was a bank that was going to be started by a woman in her 50s. I'm not the typical tech entrepreneur. What's happening next? You know, is it the metaverse? Is it something different? Crypto assets and payment systems around crypto uh, will become part of our life. I think in a couple of years time, uh, it'll be more mainstream and more people will be using it. And on his mega yacht, he offered me 48 million pounds for 66% of the business. There are 2,755 billionaires in the world and 2,024 of them are self-made. Let's find out how they did it. Welcome to the Unicorn Podcast. Now my guest today, and I'm very excited to have, Anne Bowden, founder and CEO of Starling Bank. And welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Really looking forward to talking to you. Very, very exciting. Well, maybe um, now I'm in England. So everybody in England who's in business knows you, knows what you've achieved. But for my listeners around the world that don't know you, would you mind just taking a moment to explain a little bit about what you're doing and how, how you got where you are today? Yes, I'm a computer scientist that... I um, started in the banking industry uh, 35 years ago, and I worked for all the big banks around the world. But in 2014, I came to the conclusion that banking was broken. And wouldn't it be absolutely wonderful if we had a new bank with the very latest technology, a different way of engaging with customers, a fair relationship with customers? And wouldn't that great new bank be so um, useful for people? So in 2014, I quit my job to start a new bank. And most people thought I was totally crazy because people don't start banks and people like me don't start banks. So that was the start of the journey of founding Starling Bank. And Starling Bank now, um, sort of in 2021, has two and a half million customers in the UK, um, is the one of the fastest growing banks. Um, more people switch to us than any other bank. And we have 400,000 business customers. So small businesses uh, bank with us and I get a great, great service. And um, yes, we're all very, very excited having built a bank when people thought you couldn't build a bank. And we've grown very, very fast. Well, straight off there, I hope that inspires a lot of my listeners. A lot of people um, have big dreams and they sometimes just do not think they're possible. So you're, you're living proof that uh, any big dream is possible. Now, again, starting a bank, that, that's just a big, crazy, ambitious idea. Where did you start? What was the first few steps that you took? Well, the first thing you have to do is actually hear yourself say the words. Um, so many of us find that we have dreams or ambitions. But the first thing you have to say is, you know, I'm going to start a bank. And the first time I heard those words coming out of my mouth, it shocked even me. And I felt silly. I felt that people would laugh at me because I had this audacious goal. And I had a goal of having not just a new bank, but having the very, very best technology, which we would write from scratch, um, treating customers very, very fairly, a new way of doing things, a new way of engaging with customers. And nobody believed me and nobody thought it was possible. Um, but that's how you start. You start by telling one person and you hear the words and you hear them coming out of your mouth and you, and it starts, you start convincing yourself that you can do this. Mm, I think that's such a good tip. 
So once you started talking about it, was it serendipity after that? Did someone you speak to help you do it or did you have a very clear plan? Um, it was two years of really, really tough building the business and building the prospects before I could actually um, uh, raise the money. Uh, a bank is highly regulated. The, uh, we are regulated by the PRA and the FCA in the UK. Uh, and therefore, to get a banking license, you have to prove that you're really capable of looking after people's money. And therefore, getting the banking license was um, a huge effort. But before you can get the banking license, you have to raise the money. You have to raise the capital for the business. And that took me two years. Uh, it took me two years to raise the money. And But, you know, you have to start somewhere. Uh, I, I started knocking on doors and writing emails. It was... Uh, very much me sort of sitting in, in, in a coffee shop on my own with my laptop, writing lots and lots of emails to lots of VCs and, and, and people who could help me in all sorts of walks of life and um, saying, I'm going to start this bank. It's going to be awesome. And I only need your help to kick it off. And But that took two years. It was very, very difficult raising money. Again, I think an important point you're making for the listeners to pick up on, you know, people might read your headlines about the uh, large amount of money you've raised and the success you've had. But that two years of groundwork is something that a lot of people um, don't appreciate actually has to happen. And so that's why you really need to believe in yourself, like you were saying earlier, right? tell yourself and tell other people so that you believe and follow through. So that, that, that you raised the money. And, you know, I, I, I guess once you've raised a little bit of money. What was the next steps after that? What, how did it play out? Just for my listeners, um, sometimes I think understanding the early days is, is really helps them understand how they could do it. So I love the first bit. You convince yourself, you talk to others about it, then you spend two years raising the money, but th then what happens? Yeah, I, but I think that you you de develop your ideas along the way to raising money. Um, you know, when I started the whole process, I couldn't really articulate what this bank was going to sound like or, you know, going to be. Um, on the way to raising the money, you develop your ideas. You start building your team. Um, you know, investors will never invest in one person with just a, a presentation deck. You have to create something along the way. You have to create the, the applications for the various licenses you need. Um, you have to be able to um, build some prototypes. And and you and it, the important thing is that you you work with people and develop ideas with those people. And it sometimes it's not money that brings those people in; it's the vision. So for two years, I developed the vision until lots of people bought into the vision and were prepared to to, to support us. Um, and along the way, we started building technology, and then we raised the money, uh, and then we had to prove to the um, bank regulators that we are capable of, of running a bank. Now, this is a big responsibility. Um, not everybody is allowed a license, and therefore we had to build those features out. So as soon as we raised the money, we were able to hire more staff, start preparing um, you know, the, the, the technology, start preparing our, our branding, and start working on what our customer service proposition is going to look like. And it doesn't happen overnight. It's an inspiring story. If, if, if a lot of our listeners, again, I know um, from the thousands of questions we get every week, we'll talk about how they have a vision for an, a business, um, but they're scared to quit their job to do it. You gave up 
a pretty incredible uh, career path, I think. If I look at your career path, you know, uh, head of EMEA at the Royal Bank of Scotland, COO at AIB. I mean, the day you quit your job, was that based on um, your belief in this idea or you, how, how, what was that like for other people to relate to your experience for themselves? No, I, I think when I quit my job to start a new bank, it was very, very difficult for you then to go back into the old world. Um, I was basically telling the world that I was, I felt I could start a new bank and I could take on the incumbents and win. And once you tried to do it and once you put yourself out there and, and start telling the world that you felt you were capable of starting a new bank, going back to the old world and being accepted in that old world is, is, is not really a possibility. Mm. Um, I, I, it was a risk. Um, it, I was more concerned about people mocking me or thinking I was silly at trying to start a bank because people don't start banks and the only people who actually start banks um, tend to be billionaires to start off with and that wasn't me. I was a very, um, I was a technologist and an operations person working for big banks. Um, this was This was something bold in the eyes of most people from the banking industry. Mm. And again, um, we get this question a lot, so I'm interested in your thoughts on this. Um, sole founder versus co-founder. It, it feels like most of the businesses I've started, I've started 19 companies, I've done with co-founders. I've started a few businesses as a single founder. I found it really hard to be on my own doing it. Um, what's your view on this, having gone through the process as a founder? Uh, being a sole founder is is very, very tough. Um, but that doesn't mean you're not that you're on your own. Um, I had a team of people who believed in the idea and worked with me and 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 were very, very committed. Um, but there was, you know, this was a this was a bank, this was a technology com- company that was going to be started by a woman in her fifties. Um I'm not the typical um, I'm not the typical entrepreneur. I'm not the typical uh, tech entrepreneur. Uh, the, the people that invested in me and the business had to believe that a woman that had spent 30 odd years working in big corporations with all the infrastructure and all the things supporting um, uh, her daily business life um, was prepared to quit it all and start a new proposition on her own with very, very little support. And therefore, you know, in VCs, um, investors, normally invest in people that look and sound like themselves. They normally invest in 30-year-old guys with beards, I'm afraid. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the typical entrepreneur. And I wasn't that. I was, um, I was a bit older. I was a woman. And I had a track record of working in corporates. Um, it was a very, very, it was a stretch for them to think of me being a tech entrepreneur. And that was a battle. And it took me many years to convince people, yeah, that I could be that tech entrepreneur. And I was determined to do so. Talking about the tech, because that's another thing that comes up a lot. Um, you have built, of course, a highly advanced tech business in a way. Did you uh, hire a company? How did you how did you tick that box? How did you get that sorted out? Um, we built the technology from scratch. Um, 
uh, I'm a computer scientist. I um, I used to code, you know, in my twenties and thirties. Um, I used to write code. Um, I believe that technology is differentiating, and that a new company based on new technology with code written from scratch was going to be uh, the most powerful thing. And and people knew that I was going to try to take on this. Um, enormous task of building a bank from scratch. And people who also wanted to build technology for the banking industry had wanted one opportunity of doing it in the right way, using the very, very best techniques, actually sought us out. You know, we had people, um, you know, sort of, and I talk in the book about, um, you know, sort of our CIO, I'm hearing about um, this woman is trying to build a bank and uh, and being told about what we were trying to do. And he basically turned up and started building the code uh, because he wanted to take on the problem and the challenge. But yeah, so great people found us and decided that they want to work on this great project. If you do something that's challenging, if you do something that's interesting, if you do something that has a mission, to solve a real problem, you find you attract the right sort of people. And people tracked us down and joined us because they wanted to solve a big problem and wanted to, to have the autonomy uh, to solve that problem in the right way. Mm. You're touching on another really important point here that I hope my listeners pick up on. I, I think the word is purpose. You know, you're, yes. you're highlighting there that if you have a purpose, then people will be drawn to that purpose and will rally around you to make it happen. And that's what you've had here with this with this wonderful business. You had a real strong purpose to fix something that was broken. So mm-hmm. Really important point. You just mentioned there your your new book, uh, Banking on It. Now, for my listeners listening, we pre-record this podcast, as you know. So the book actually dropped today. So the time you're listening to this, this is going to be a bestseller, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure. Uh, for those listening... Uh, Tell us a little bit about what, what they can expect if they buy the book. And by the way, everybody listening, we're going to put a link below for you to buy the book. And if you give us a comment that, uh, that makes us laugh, we'll send you a signed copy of the book from Anne herself. But but tell us what people can expect from the book a little bit. What was your motivation for doing the book and, and what, what's the book about? Well, most people call it a bit of a turn, uh, a page turner, which is unusual for a, for a business entrepreneurship book. I think on the front cover, the FT say, if there's ever a business book suitable for TV adaptation, this is it. And the Observer called it a banking blockbuster. Um, It is the story of, um, it is my story of trying to raise money um, and all the trials and tribulations of of raising money, um, hiring a team and that team disappearing and maybe left on my own again and eventually raising money um, in the Bahamas uh, where a um, a billionaire uh, had heard of my proposition and he had been studying the industry and he was convinced that new banks could give something really valuable to consumers and he believed that data and technology could solve people's real business problems and personal uh, financial problems. So he grilled me for three to four 
uh, days about the economics of the business, how I would run the business, and some of the principles I'd run the business by. And at the at the end of the three or four days of real pitching and lots of questioning, um, on his mega yacht, he offered me forty-eight million pounds for sixty-six percent of the business. Wow! And yes, and that was the first money I'd been um, I'd been offered for the business. It was the first. Um, external money into the business. And yes, overnight, um, I had a backer. And, you know, I, I sort of contacted my colleagues back in London and said that, you know, get everything ready. You know, the banking license is going in. Uh, we have a backer. We're going to build the best bank in the world. And right. that was the start of the whole process. Um, so yeah, so I'd raised the money. I obviously had to raise more money. Uh, six months later, we, we got the banking license. You know, we could call ourselves a bank for the first time. Uh, we then needed to launch and there's lots of trials and tribulations about, you know, initial launching of the bank and what we did and some of the, um, some of the issues that happened during the way, um, we we applied for a, for a grant uh, to help us build a business account. And we had to build a business account in a hurry in order to win the grant and win the competition. And we were awarded a hundred million pounds. Wow. Um, so, so uh, and then, you know, we, we, the bank gets bigger and bigger, and we have lots of trials and tribulations. And you know, we win best British uh, business bank four, uh, best British bank four times in a row. Um, and then the pandemic strikes, and we we start working on what we could do to help, well, to help businesses thrive. And we get involved in the government schemes to um, lend money to small businesses. And during that period, we lend two billion pounds to small businesses. And uh, yeah, but it's a story of the trials and tribulations um, of, of, you know, sort of setting this up. And, you know, people, you know, sort of quotes, whatever, a riveting read. Bowden's story powerfully demonstrates how creativity, bravery, and determination can literally transform an industry. Uh, you know, it's the fascinating insight and how one woman's vision shaped the way fintech looks today. So, yeah, so this is my story. of, And lots of things happened to me on the way, okay? It wasn't an ordinary journey um, because it was pretty tough for me. Um, but um, lots of things happened along the way, lots of stories. Um, and I hope it gives inspiration to other people um, in starting their own uh, initiative. I always take a lot of inspiration from, from books. And that's why I wrote Banking on It. Hopefully people will read it and say, wow, if that happened to Anne and she survived, well, you know, we can continue with our business. It is a very inspiring story. And uh, I, I think that anybody 
that wants to be an entrepreneur or is an entrepreneur and perhaps wants some inspiration should, should definitely buy this book. And look, I, I wanted to ask you uh, a few things um, about things like crypto and uh, the metaverse and your future, your vision or your view on what the future of banking is going to look like. I mean, you have redefined what banking is in the UK. So for my listeners globally, you know, you've redefined it in the UK. But I'm really interested in what you think the future holds. What What is the next iteration and 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 yeah so crypto and metaverse how do you think these 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 things are going to play a role Um, i think we're going to go through huge changes so up to now banking has not really changed dramatically you know first of all there were branches and then there was the contact center and you phone up and you ask your questions uh, and then it was the web and now it and now it's the app What's happening next? You know, is it the metaverse? Is it something different? Um, things are going to change. Things are going to get um, more interesting. And the thing about Starling is we are really open-minded for the future and we want to embrace technology and new ways of doing things. <clears throat> I think that, you know, there could be a, a, a way when at the moment we do banking transactions. We basically go on an app and we pay a bill or we... We go into a shop and we and we use our phone to make a payment. I think payments will start happening all around us. They'll happen in smaller amounts all the time. You go in your car and as you drive down the road, you pay for your insurance as you drive. Um, as you you go into a shop in order to buy goods and take things off the shelves and and walk out with them, and you'll be charged for them. Um, Yeah, you know, do you have a chip in your arm instead of having your card? I think these things are all possible and we should embrace them. We shouldn't hold back the tide. Lots and lots of things are possible. And I think the organizations that do banking in the future won't be the NatWest or the HSBC. They'll be the organizations that listen to what customers want, embrace technology and do something that's never been done before. Yeah, I, I um I personally been very negative about crypto. Um about a year ago I was very negative about that whole ecosystem, seeing it somewhat of a scam personally. And as I've got to understand it, I'm starting to see the green shoots of opportunity. Um and, and I think for a lot of people it, it is um you know a new currency. And and so I guess for banking there's an opportunity there for those that are open minded. But I guess also with things like banking licenses, there are a lot of regulations. So there's always that, I guess, that balance between innovation versus caution, right? So how do you get that balance between innovation and, and, and caution? How, what, what's what's your your personal philosophy around that? Well, first of all, I'm about, uh, you know, sort of crypto. Um, at the moment, um, it, it, it is, it, I am, I'm not recommending that people should invest in crypto. Um, the, that would be headlines in the newspaper tomorrow if you did, by the way. So, okay. <laughs> yeah. do not invest in crypto at the moment. Yes, um, uh, it is. It is dangerous, and yes. a lot of criminal activity and criminal funds are rooted into crypto um, assets. Um, so, you know, you know, at the moment, if you want to be safe, keep well away from it. However, things will change. And I think that uh, crypto assets and um, payment systems around crypto uh, will become part of our life. I think in a couple of years' time, 
uh, it'll be more mainstream and more people will be using it. Um, I'm uh, involved in the Bank of England's um, Central Bank Digital Currency Engagement Forum. And this is where we are looking at the opportunities um, of using Bitcoin, you know, you know sort of a, a digital currency that's sponsored and supported by a central bank. Uh, and those sorts of systems could change the roles of, of high street banks and could change the way we make payments. So, um, you know, Bank of England is really sort of out there making sure that it doesn't miss a trick and it's on this, and it is responsive to the things that are happening in the world in this space. Uh, but at the moment, um, you know, crypto is the people who want to take huge risks and we are not recommending that our customers take those huge risks. That makes total sense. Yeah. I was interested uh, framing a little bit for our listeners um, your view on what success looks like, both for you personally and, and business. How do you determine success? Yeah, I think success for me is that you know, I felt that the big banks were exploiting customers, weren't giving customers good service and needed to be shaken up. And every time I see an ad from a high street bank advertising a feature that we at Starling launched a couple of years ago, I believe that we are raising the bar for everyone. Starling being in the market and offering cost-effective services fair services that are leading edge um, means that other banks have to keep up and everybody is benefiting. So it's not just Starling customers that are benefiting, it's the whole population of people that use banks. And that's really, really beneficial. I, I really love that definition, by the way. One of my favourite uh, books is Pour Your Heart Into It by Howard Swartz, a uh, Starbucks founder. And he talks, and, and Starbucks might not be the most popular brand anymore, but, but Howard Swartz in particular was a visionary leader. And one of the things he talked about was how they gave uh, healthcare, first companies give healthcare to part-time workers, which I think, you know, yeah, basically yeah. that meant they didn't have to do it by law. They did it because it was the right thing to do. And then all the other fast food chains had to do the same. So you can change an industry by, by leading in the way that you're talking about there. And that, that is a great measure of success. If someone copies you, it's a great compliment, right, in a yeah, way. Absolutely fantastic. And, and, and that gives me a huge thrill. And that's very, very sort of, yeah, that's the reason we're doing this, to give everybody else. On a personal side, you know, do, do you, I mean, do you, do you have work-life balance? That's something that's thrown around a lot. I, I personally don't believe in it. But what, what's your take on it? No, I've never had work-life balance. Um, uh, and this is, you know, sort of, this has been throughout my career. It's, it's not just since I've been an entrepreneur. Um, I'm totally absorbed by what I do. I find that learning and understanding and connection with people, both customers and the people who are working for Starling is very, very important to me. And I love every minute of it. And I think work-life balance is a very is overrated <laughs> for me i'm having the time of my life and it's all about it's all about starling and what we can give to people i love it and again uh, i've interviewed 120 super successful people this is a common trait and i want my listeners not to miss it yet again you know that if you're doing what you love you know work becomes a positive word 
to some people, I guess it's, I don't want to work at the weekend. Well, if you're not doing what you love, you will say that. Uh, But if you're doing what you love, which you clearly do, I I just love your passion and energy. I I was interested in in your view on, uh, a lot of people are told in school that, you know, an ent- you're not an entrepreneur or you, or they're not really given the opportunity to even think that they are an entrepreneur. So they don't think they are or they have an image of what an entrepreneur looks like. To your point earlier, you know, like you said it, a 50 year old woman starting a bank, you know, like that's almost like the image isn't what people perceive as as an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. And so um, good for you smashing that stereotype. But also, I think we need to educate. But do you think entrepreneurs are born or bred? What's your feeling on this subject? I think that uh, being an entrepreneur, you need a certain amount of self-confidence and you need to be able to enjoy learning. Um, But I, for most of my career, wasn't an entrepreneur. I was getting the same sort of enjoyment and fulfillment from a corporate job. Uh, I, I, you know, if thinking back to the school and what people expected me to do, um, I don't think that people expected me to have a career. Um, I went to a, um, you know, a, a very, very ordinary comprehensive school where people didn't go to university. Uh, and my father was working in the steel industry. My mother was working in a department store. And I wanted a job with a briefcase. I didn't know anybody that had a briefcase, but I definitely wanted a job with a briefcase. And... That was me, I think, at a very early age, being prepared to to do something that was not considered what everybody else around me was going to do. Um, and that started my career in, in systems and computing, uh, where I was very, very early into that industry. Mm. Were your parents entrepreneurs? Did they, did, did they think it was strange that you wanted to go down this route when you were early in your career? What was what was that like, that part of it? Well, well I was, um, my father had worked in the same job since he was 14. You know, it was a, uh, he worked in the steel industry. My mother had lots of different businesses. Um, but, you know, those businesses were very much um, in addition to her day job. Um being an entrepreneur was something that um, didn't seem like a proper job probably to them. Um, and I didn't have the confidence to pursue until I was in my 50s. You um, you were uh, given an MBE. Um, what was that like? What was, a, what was that, that feeling to be? Uh... Well, I was so, so thrilled. Um, to be awarded an MBE for financial technology. And that was really, that was really um, important to me, that it was for financial technology. Um, I'd spent my life in, in systems and computing and technology, um, and it wasn't seen as the most glamorous part of the bank. You know, the most glamorous part of the bank was the, the people in the investment bank, the people that did the, the big um, sort of, big corporate deals and the, and, and the mergers and acquisitions. But I was sort of running the technology and operations. And after spending a whole career where what I did was not that exciting to the rest of the world, all of a sudden the financial technology was important 
and I was being given an award for it. So that is what was really exciting. You should be very proud and well deserved. I, I wondered them. Um, I, I always have this thing: people want success, and and of course they all listen uh, to the concept of work hard and you'll be successful, which I, I think is probably a given, not particularly useful advice. But I, I also think luck plays an element in in, in your journey. Um, I wondered what your view was on. I mean, you mentioned there meeting you know this billionaire and. He, Giving you, you know, I think you said forty-eight million uh, uh, pounds um, for sixty-six percent of your company, by the way. Which I'd like to come back to in a minute because that's quite a lot of equity, actually. Uh, which, which doesn't feel like the norm, and I'd love to know how that how that played out in your mind. But, but just before we go to that, I, I wondered if you felt like there was a lucky moment in your life. In my life, I would say my lucky moment was meeting my partner, my my wife, because without her, I wouldn't have made it. No doubt, she helped me be better. And she supported me when I was working long hours and never complained. So I felt very lucky to have, that was my lucky break, finding the right person. Do you feel like there was a lucky break for you? No, I think that um, that was probably the thousandth contact, but probably the, the um, you know, the hundredth time I, I had a real meeting and the opportunity to get real finance and that hadn't happened. Um, it was after many failed sort of funding rounds. Um, I don't think it's luck. I think it's persistence and resilience. And, you know, you eventually do get the funding. You eventually do get the, the big break. Um, but it's how long you keep on going till you get there. For me, it was two years. Um, and then it was a huge amount of hard work after that. Um, I I think I... I worked incredibly hard during the process, and I and and for lots of groups which are not the the typical entrepreneur age group or or gender or whatever, you have to work harder. And you know, my advice to people is, yeah, you got to play the numbers game. You got to have more meetings than anybody else. Mm. Yeah, I actually have a, um, a book myself uh, that talks about luck. And um, there's three elements to increasing your chance of luck. Taking risk, taking lots of risk, yeah. um, knowing your destination and yeah. persistence. They're the top three things to increase your chances of luck. So um, we're aligned and you're completely right, I think. So no, I think if you um, you mentioned a little bit there about, you know, I, I, and, and again, this, this might be sensitive. Feel free not to answer. But when you go back and look at that 66%, that's not a normal number to give a company you've created. That's a lot of money that someone's investing. Um, but when people are trying to raise money, I think people want to learn about this. Do you, do you think, did you just accept that deal? Did you negotiate? I mean, I'm sure it's public record what actually happened, but but what was the process for you when, when that number was thrown at you? Did you just say yes because it was, it was the right thing to do? What, what did you do? Yeah, I think that in those moments when somebody comes up with an offer like that, um, and especially when you've spent so long um, trying to seek funding, in your mind, you say, if I say yes to this, well, there's all these hundreds of unanswered emails are no longer relevant. You know, that's it. You, you've chosen your investor. It's all those other you know, possibilities actually close. Mm -hmm. And therefore, but, but you finally have to say yes to a deal. And this was a big sum of money. This was forty-eight million. It was a it, it 
It allowed us to build the best technology in the world. It was a big sum of money and it was a big ask. But I was founding a bank. It wasn't as if it's going to be a, you know, it, 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 it wasn't a lifestyle business. It was the bank is growing. It has a lot of governance. It's a lot of people to answer to. We have an independent board. We have a lot of regulators. Um, we have a lot of structure. Um, it is in, this bank was not going to be my bank. It was going to be owned by a series of investors, and it was going to be for a lot of people. Um, eventually, the bank was no longer going to be my bank. Um, and in order to make it important enough, I had to take investment of a large sum of money. And yeah, that was a that was a turning point, but also meant that I could spend money, time, and effort on the business rather than knocking on doors asking for money all the time. Yeah. Again, your um, the nuance of this that I absolutely love, that I want my listeners to pick up on, is that if your vision is big enough and it's it's sometimes bigger than you, which I think this vision you've had is, then it doesn't really matter about the equity. The equity so like I'd rather have five percent of something that's successful, impacted people's lives and made a difference and legacy than a hundred percent of something that didn't happen. Yeah. People yeah. get hung up on equity all the time. I speak to people all the time about their businesses, they get so hung up on it. And and I actually I think you're yet again uh, a shining example of like vision over personal gain and, and thinking bigger. And, uh, you know, I, I admire it. And um, did you shake hands there and then? Did you say yes there and then? Or did you did you need a night to sleep on it? How did you? Yeah, I said yes. Yeah. Oh, I wish I was a fly on the wall and on that yacht. <laughs> um, generally, I'd like to be a fly on the wall and on a super yacht. But, you know, um, that, that would be an interesting meeting to record, I think. <laughs> yeah, it was quite it was quite a moment. And yeah. it was the start of the opportunity of building something which is which is transformative um and yeah it's been it's been quite a journey yeah it's amazing well look um you've got a bank to run so i better <laughs> let you get back to it um, Thank just, before, you. Just, just before we close because honestly i've got so many other questions i'd like to ask you so i but i, I want to let you go and, and and do your wonderful work but before we let you go if you went back to your younger self and, and gave some advice what, what would it be I think from that you have a long career in front of you and you can do lots and lots of different things and uh, take one of those roles one at a time. Um, you don't have to do everything in the first couple of years. Um, I've been working a long time. I've had lots of different careers. I'm enjoying it so, so much. And I'm at the start of my career rather than at the end of my career. It's all to happen, and it hasn't happened yet. Wow, I can only imagine. If you're, if you're at the beginning of your career, very exciting to see what happens next, and uh, that, that's just, just wonderful. I, I just made a few notes. Um, there's so much here in this uh, podcast that you shared, but I just want to highlight a few things. Um, tell one person your idea. Don't hesitate. Do it now. Um, post it on social media. Tell the person sitting next to you. 
Uh, someone walk past you in the street, tell them your idea. Um, and tell yourself this idea. I love that, you know, fine tune your idea, which I think by raising money, sometimes the benefit of raising money is those people will part with their money when they've heard a pitch they believe in and it helps you fine tune your pitch. And so that's another thing I've taken from what you've said today. You know, Raising money has lots of benefits, but definitely one of them is you talk to very smart people who will give you feedback and fine tune your idea through that process. Enjoy learning. And um, you've got more than one career. I think that's a really important message too. And um, so look, it's absolute joy to, to talk to you today. Everybody listening, please click the link below and go and buy Anne's book. You will not regret it. And if you would like a signed copy, drop us a comment below, making us smile, and we'll send you a copy. And thank you so much for taking the time to share your story with us today. Thank you very much, Simon. Really enjoyed talking to you. I hope you found today's podcast both inspiring and useful. And if you need more help, visit purposefulproject.com where all the resources to help you start and grow a business are free.